From time to time, I'm asked by people, what is the hardest part about preaching a sermon? And depending on different stages of my life, I've probably had different answers. But if I were to say what was the hardest part about preaching this sermon this morning in, in preparing for it is knowing how much to say. This is one of those profound truths that Christ would be born of a virgin to, to Mary and her husband Joseph. Much could be said on this topic. And often the hardest thing is to know what not to say because we do all have to go home for lunch at some point. And so this morning, I really wanna focus on two things that really struck me in my study of this passage during this week and hopefully God will use to impact your life as well. We're gonna be looking at two things from this text. We're gonna look at the great faith that Joseph has in this text, something that may be quickly overlooked as we focus more on just the miraculous nature of the virgin birth and things like that. We talked about that with Mary last week. I would encourage you, if you didn't hear that message, you can always review those messages um, on our website. But we're gonna look at the great faith of Joseph here in this text. And then we're also gonna look at the great promise in this text of God with us. And so let us open God's word. And if you are willing and able, I would ask that you stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, I'll be Matthew chapter one, verse 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 25. The word of God says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother married had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God this morning. You may be seated. So as I said, one of the things we want to look at this morning is this great faith that Joseph displays. And the hope is, is that God would increase our faith as a result of this story. One thing that you'll notice is that Joseph never speaks in the scriptures. Some have come to call Joseph throughout church history, quiet Joseph, because we learn nothing about what he says to Mary or to the angel, we only see his action. But as we learn from much of scripture, that faith is displayed not through our words most often, but by what we do. And what we see Joseph do here is we see him believe in this great promise of God, that a savior is being born to him and his betrothed. And so let us look at this story because it is quite a dramatic story. There's a great dilemma here. There's a great moral crisis in which Joseph has to go through in the midst of this that requires him to have great faith in God and his 
promises. We learn from the first few verses here that this is how the birth of Jesus took place. That when his, mother, when his mother married had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now we, as readers of Scripture, have the added commentary that this child was from the Holy Spirit. But Joseph had no such commentary as these things were happening. And so it is good for us, in some ways, to put ourselves in Joseph's shoes. To be betrothed to a young woman, whom I'm sure he had dearest affections for, to find out that she is with child. And you are clearly not the father of this child. This would have been quite the dilemma, in fact, quite the scandal in this time, even as it would be today. But more so in this sense, as we begin to understand what this betrothal process was. For Joseph and Mary to be betrothed was almost as as uh, official as being formally wedded. Marriages at this time were done a little bit differently, that you were maybe promised in marriage from a, from a young age, there was a practice of arranged marriages, but then when it came time for the formal engagement, it was roughly a one-year process. But at that time, many could refer to this couple already as being husband and wife. You see, what would happen is, is a couple would become engaged and the husband would go off for roughly about a year and prepare a home for his bride and return at an unknown hour in time to receive his bride and the two then would have the marriage feast and ceremony and consummate the marriage. Joseph and Mary were engaged. By cultural standards, they were committed to one another in the deepest sense as any husband and wife would be. And so to break off this commitment would require not just a breaking of the engagement, but a formal divorce. And so Joseph finds himself betrothed, engaged to this young woman, Mary, who he discovers to be pregnant. Not knowing that this pregnancy was indeed a miraculous conception, the virgin birth, but instead looked like an act of unfaithfulness from his young bride. And so Joseph is faced with a difficult decision. We're told that Joseph, in verse 19, is a just man. In other words, that Joseph is a righteous man. That he knows the Lord, he knows God's word, and he cares deeply about it. And so you can see him conflicted. We may think it would be all too easy for someone in Joseph's shoes to ignore this scandal and just to proceed as if everything was fine. But Joseph is a just and righteous man who cares about God's word. To proceed in this marriage and to pretend like this child is his own would be to lie. To ignore the breaking of such a solemn commandment as the sixth commandment of not committing adultery would to be okay with sin. And so we know Joseph to be a just and righteous man from this text, but what we also see through his actions is that he's also a gracious man, a merciful man. He knows what awaits Mary, given what has happened to her. That clearly he does have some dear affection for this young girl because his desire is not to put her to open and public shame not to expose her and the consequences of this sin, because let it be clear, according to God's word, the consequences for this sin were dire. Deuteronomy chapter 22, 
verses 23 through 24 talk about an instance such as this. What would happen if a young woman betrothed to a husband becomes pregnant prior to their marriage? Deuteronomy 22 says this, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. This was a deep and gravest affair and sin to be found out in. And Joseph, through his compassion and his mercy, in some ways, I believe, is protecting Mary. He does not want to put her to open shame. He does not want her life to be threatened. He does not want this cloud to follow her throughout her days. And so, as it was permitted in God's word at this time, he sought a quiet divorce. He says, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly, which again, according to the Old Testament, God had made a provision for. We read this in Deuteronomy 24.1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his, of his house. It only required two witnesses to make a divorce formal in this setting. And in Joseph's mind, there was ground, there was indecency, unfaithfulness. And so I imagine a very heartbroken Joseph wanting to do the right thing for the Lord, but also for this woman, makes the difficult decision, and he considers these things himself, and he resolves to do these things. But then God comes and intervenes. God's intervention is to send an angel to speak to Joseph in his dreams. We read about this in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so God intervenes, and he makes a clear announcement, a clear explanation of what has happened. And I want us to see how clear this explanation would have been for Joseph. Remember, he's described as a just man, as a righteous man, someone who very likely cared about the scriptures, about God. And so there's some key words here that I think were meant to aid Joseph in believing the truthfulness of what this dream was attesting. First, the angel, as he's addressing Joseph, calls him the son of David. Interesting fact, Joseph is the only one in the gospel to be referred to as the son of David apart from Jesus. If you're familiar with the scriptures, if you were here last week, you know that this promised Messiah, the savior of the world, was going to come from the line of David. That he was going to sit on David's throne, that his kingdom and rule will have no end. And so the angel, in telling Joseph that Mary is pregnant and that which is conceived is by the Holy Spirit, addresses Joseph, the would-be father of this child, son of David. Your son, this child, is going to be in this line. And so 
that gets his attention. And we're given a clear explanation that this child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. We're given a little more detail as we looked last week at Luke of how this were to happen. Mary asked the same question, how is this to be? And the angel that appeared to Mary explained it this way in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. It says, The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so this child that Mary has within her womb is no ordinary child. Mary has not broken her oath, has not broken her commitment. She has been faithful. She is a virgin. God has made this baby. Lastly, we see that Joseph is given instructions. In verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We'll spend more time talking about this in our second part of our message But Joseph, when he comes to name Jesus, as was instructed in Luke, he names him Jesus. He says, you will name him Jesus, and he does. Now, we can spend a lot of time talking about Emmanuel, God with us, and we will, but don't lose the importance of his name Jesus as well. What we would most often call him, it's funny, in the scriptures, we very rarely see Jesus referred to outside of these texts as Emmanuel, but yet we call him Jesus, which that name means Yahweh saves. And this is what and this is what Jesus came to do. We are given that explanation. She will bear a son in verse 21 and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So all of this is packed in what may have been a short dream, but we're given all these details. Son of David, this child will be born by the Spirit, conceived by the Spirit. You will call his name Jesus, which means God saves. This is the fulfillment of prophecy as outlined in Isaiah 7.14, the virgin shall conceive. This is the promised Messiah who has come to save his people from their sins. So Joseph, having decided to put Mary away quietly through divorce, now wakes from this dream. And what is the first thing that he does? Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is a great act of faith. That Joseph would respond in many ways immediately, believing the things that the angel had told him, and take his wife and marry her, that the two are joined together officially, undeniably, as husband and wife. This level of obedience I see is very reminiscent of the same faith that we see demonstrated in Abraham. As Abraham receives a vision, a a word from the Lord to go into a land that you do not know for this great promise that I'll make you into a great nation, and through you all the people of the earth will be blessed. And similarly, in Genesis 12, 4, it says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. And we know, and we celebrate Abram's faith. We ought to celebrate this faith of Joseph. I would ask you, in your own estimation, what requires more faith, moving to an unknown land or marrying a pregnant virgin? 
and believing in God's promises. Joseph's faith is very commendable in this regard. And let it be known that this faith came at great cost to himself. Came at great cost to himself. Surely others had heard of Mary's pregnancy. Surely rumors had begun to spread. A virgin birth, really? The estimation would be that maybe Mary had slept with another man prior to Joseph, or maybe Joseph and Mary had slept with one another before their marriage had started. Nevertheless, shame would have clouded their reputation. Shame that Joseph could have spared himself from through that certificate of divorce and departing, but shame in which he willingly took that he would believe in God. In many ways, shame that would be taken off of Mary and placed more on him. What kind of man would agree to such a marriage? Why would you shame yourself in this way? In some ways, I see a foreshadowing of the shame that Jesus would willingly take on our behalf. That Joseph, and willing to marry, to wed Mary, bearing the shame that would come with it, in some ways is a slight foreshadowing of how Christ would marry his bride, the church, and would take our shame as his own so that we would not have to. You know, this story is such a beautiful story. The faith of Joseph, I think, ought to and rightly does point us to the faithfulness of Christ. Another background information that I got while studying this passage was the importance of a father naming their child. That for a father to name their child was to accept and acknowledge this child as their own. And so what we see here at the end of this passage as Joseph obediently names Jesus, the name in which the angel had given him, is we see Joseph adopting Jesus as his own, making him an heir to the throne of David as Joseph's clear name right attested to. That Joseph would faithfully submit to these things, that he would indeed proceed in verse 25, and he called his name Jesus, making him his own. How beautiful a symmetry that Joseph would adopt Jesus so that he could be part of his family, but we know that through our faith in Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. That through faith in his own son as the trusted Messiah, Joseph would be adopted into the family of God. This was the great plan of redemption from the very beginning. Many passages speak to our salvation as adoption, but one in which I'll share with you this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. In love, he, being God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so in Joseph, we see this great faith. A faith in God that defies all logic, that may come at great cost to himself, but the benefits are to be with God, to be in his family. That he would look at his son, but in trusting in the promises that his son would fulfill, that he would become a son of God. And so the danger in looking at 
certain characters in the scriptures is to look at them as examples, actions to mimic, but instead what we ought to do is mimic their faith. Joseph by no means was a perfect man, just like no one in scripture apart from Christ was perfect, but yet we can look to them as examples of what great faith looks like. I'll note just one more thing about Joseph, going back up to earlier verses in verse 19, being a just man or being a righteous man. Was this because Joseph did all the right things all the time? No, our righteousness, to be made righteous or just in, God, in God's eyes is always through faith. The scriptures make this clear, Old and New Testament. We look again at the example of Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, as he believed in the promises of God that seemed impossible to fulfill. It says in Genesis 15, verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That we are counted as righteous because of our faith in God and his promises. This is echoed in the New Testament many times over, but we'll look at Romans 3, 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. And so if I could ask you this morning, if there was something to mimic in the life of Joseph, it would be his faith. It was Joseph's faith that made him righteous and just and acceptable in God's eyes. And it was his faith in God's promises of a deliverer, of a son of David, of a child born of a virgin, of God with us, the Savior who will save us from our sins. If you or I want to be seen as righteous in God's eyes, we need to believe in this good news of the gospel. God become man to die and to take our place that we may stand righteous before God because he was condemned for us. What great faith Joseph had. Now let us look at this great promise that is right in the middle of this text. The great promise of God with us. There may be no greater promise in all of scripture, no greater call to faith, no greater need that you and I have than to have God with us. Give you kind of a whole summary of scripture. In many ways, this is the story that scripture tells. How can we, a sinful people, stand before a holy and perfect God? It seems impossible. But yet, this is what we see in verse 23. And he's quoting from Isaiah 7, 14. It says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, a Hebrew name. The beginning of it, meaning with, the latter L, meaning God, God with us. This is the great drama of all of scripture. And so if you would entertain me for just a bit, let me give you a sweeping picture of this story, God with us, all the way, beginning all the way back in Genesis. If you recall, God created us to be his image bearers. God created us to be in fellowship with him, man and woman. And Adam and Eve, for a time, enjoyed that fellowship in the garden, that they would walk with God, that they could spend time with God in the most intimate and real way. But yet, because of their sin, they are cast out from the presence of God. 
that God is no longer with them in the way that he was before. I'll read from you Genesis chapter three, verse eight. This is after Adam and Eve had sinned and as they were hiding from God, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. There's a number of things that could be deduced from this passage that they heard God walking in the garden, meaning that likely that there was a a habit at some point of them walking with God in the garden, but because of their sin, now they were hiding from him. Later, they would be cast out from the garden. An angel would be stationed to keep them from ever entering again. And the rest of scripture is us trying to find a way to have God with us once again and God in pursuit of us. But yet the problem is that we are a sinful people. God is a holy God. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And so we have these images of how God does not leave us or forsake us through the people of Israel. If you recall, as the people of Israel are called out of the land of Egypt, as they're wandering in the desert, God's presence is still with them. Numbers 9, 15, and 16 talks about this, that as they set up the tabernacle, their place of worship, the tent of the covenant of the law was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night, it looked like a fire. And so God's presence was to to lead and to guide the people of Israel, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. But yet it wasn't permanent. kept moving. Later, as the people settled in the land, they would build a temple for the Lord, a place in which they thought God's presence would reside permanently. We read about the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11. The priests withdrew from the holy place. The cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their services because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled this temple. And so for many years, God's presence was seen through the temple yet no one could approach God to go into the Holy of Holies without dying, actually, except for one time a year, one priest, potentially a great harm to himself, would go into the presence of God. So there was still separation. We see someone like Moses ask, righteous Moses, ask to see God. God, if I could just see you, if I could be in your presence, if I could walk with you like Adam and Eve walked with you in the garden, God's response in Exodus 33, 20 says this, but he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. God is too holy and we are too sinful for him to be with us until Jesus. That Jesus, who is eternal God, preexistent, came as a child, lived as a man. And to see Jesus was to see God himself. That this was, in the truest sense, God with us here on this earth. One of my favorite lines from a children's Bible that our family has read for a number of years as it talks about the birth narrative of Jesus is this. It says, Caesar wanted to show how great a king he was, by counting all of his people. If you recall, there was a census that went out. But God shows how great a king he is by becoming one of his people, a 
that Christ would come. And let there be no mistake, Jesus is God. The world may not acknowledge him as that. Some of us in this room may have doubts that that is the clear teaching of scripture, but let it be made clear that Christ, Jesus, is God eternal. God become man, the God-man. I wanna read just in quick succession with, with little commentary how clear of a point scripture makes that Jesus is God with us. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, talking about Jesus, says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1, 3 Speaking of Jesus yet again, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power, or by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Gospel of John opens with these words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is that living word. Jesus himself attestified to his divine nature. In John 14, verses 8 through 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We learn this right from Matthew. That Jesus, from the moment of conception to his birth, throughout his life, and unto his death, is God with us. A great mystery that a perfect and holy God could live amongst a sinful people like you and me. I think it's intentional that the author of the Gospel of Matthew includes this particular promise, this particular prophecy, that the virgin shall conceive and he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, that at the beginning of this Gospel, this is the great promise that God is fulfilling. God is with us. And it's the same promise that Jesus ends this Gospel with as well. If you're familiar, end of Matthew Matthew 28, the Great Commission, what we're to do to go out and tell people what Christ has done, but also still this promise, God with us, remains. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says this, that we're to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see this promise of God with us was not just for this period of time in which Christ walked the earth. This promise is for all those who would believe in him today. God with us through faith in him. That as a Christian, you will never be separated from the Lord ever again. That you will never be alone. And what a great comfort that is. 
One of the greatest fears that I believe all people have, more than fears of public speaking or heights or any other phobia that you can think of, is the fear of being alone, to being abandoned, to being overlooked, to be isolated. In some ways, I see it signified in just the childlike fear of being in the darkness. Why are we afraid of the dark? Because we're afraid that we're alone. But because of our faith in Christ, we can know that God is with us. This is why God is light, and light expels the darkness. But this great promise of God with us is a promise that you can have today, if you don't already, through faith in Jesus Christ. That you, as a man or a woman, were indeed created to be in fellowship, to be in a relationship with God. But your sin keeps you from having that relationship because God is holy and he cannot be in the presence of sin. And there's no amount of good deeds that you or I or anyone can do to cover up all that sin. This is why Christ came, that he would pay the price, that he would take the punishment for your sin. He would die on the cross, he would rise again on the third day, that if you would believe in him, you may be saved. Saved not just from punishment in hell, but saved to this promise of God with you. And that starts now. That's not something that you and I wait for to receive the blessings of as we go to be with him in heaven. That is something that we receive upon our faith in Christ, that his spirit dwells within you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God's spirit no longer dwells in a tent or a temple. He dwells in his people, united to him by faith in Christ. And so if you have believed in Jesus, you have received the blessing of this great promise, God with you. And it only gets better. Because right now we have fellowship with God through his spirit, but one day, just as God intended, just as we saw in in the Garden of Eden prior to, to the fall, probably even in a greater way in Revelation is the promise that God will be with us. We will see him face to face. We will walk with him. He will be our light. Revelation 21.3. The Apostle John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The only way this promise of God with us is possible is through Christ. Through his virgin birth, through his sinless life, through his perfect atoning death, and yes, through his resurrection, ascension, and coming again soon. And so... I would ask that if there's any here who have yet to receive this great promise of God with us, that today is the day of salvation for you, that you would come and you would confess Jesus as your savior, as the promised one, the one who would save his people from their sins. And for all those who have made that confession, let this reminder encourage you, right? So much of our Christian life We seek to mature in our faith, thinking that the gospel is the ABCs 
of our Christian walk. No, it is the A to Z of our Christian walk. Let us be encouraged in this truth. Let us find greater boldness and greater faith because God is with us. So let me close by praying. If there are any here who need to trust in Jesus, I would ask that at the close of our service, I'll I'll lead us in a time of prayer, but would you please come talk to me after service? I would love to encourage you in this newfound faith that you have in Jesus, God with us. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make us a people of great faith. Lord, there are many examples in Scripture of those who had great faith in you and great faith in your promises. We looked at Joseph this week. We saw Mary last week and countless others. Lord, would you increase our faith to believe in your promises, to hold on to them with all that we have, to cherish them, Lord, and to share them with those who need to hear it. God, I do pray that upon the working of your spirit, if there's anybody here in this room that needs to confess you, Jesus, as their Savior, as God with them, as the one who came to save people from their sins, that you would cause them to be born again in newness of life now as they exercise faith in you, Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, we thank you for all those who have come to faith here because of this message. Lord, help us to find greater encouragement, greater boldness as we reflect upon these things. May it lead us to walk more obediently and righteously before you that we would indeed love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also our neighbor as ourselves as we take this good news to the ends of the earth, beginning here in this community with our friends, our coworkers, and our family members. So God, we thank you for this great salvation that you have worked through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray, amen.